0: Welcome to Shabbat Shalom. This is your host, Sam Francart, and this is episode five. In this episode, we'll begin reading Revelation chapter two. We finished chapter one a couple weeks ago, so if you missed that, be sure to check out the episodes leading up to this one. All right, chapter two. So chapter two begins with a letter to the church in Ephesus, and it's the first of seven letters to seven different churches. And these letters span chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation. So before we dive into this first church, let's look at an overview of all of these letters. We see that all seven letters have the same basic outline or structure. They all begin with an address to a particular congregation. Then there's some sort of introduction about Jesus, where he points back to the vision in chapter 1, verses 12 through 20. As we read through these letters, you can almost guess what the letter is going to be about based on the description of Jesus. An example of this is in chapter two, verse 18, where Jesus is described as having eyes like blazing fire. If we recall that fire is a sign or symbol of judgment, we can guess before we even read the letter to the church in Thyatira that this is going to be a letter of judgment So after the introduction of Jesus in each of these letters, there's a statement regarding the condition of the church, followed by an evaluation of their condition. The next piece in the outline is a command from Jesus to the church. Then each letter contains an identical statement. It's this emphatic urging that says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. As Frank Gabalian wrote in his commentary, the words of the spirit are the words of Christ and the commands of Christ and the letters are somewhat ambiguous. Therefore, they require the individual and the congregation to listen to the spirit's voice that accompany the word of Jesus if they are truly to realize the victory he considers appropriate for them. I'll reference this commentary a few times throughout today's podcast, so I'll include it in the link in the show notes for you. Another commentary I'll reference is the Life Application Bible commentary and the commentary by David Guzik. So those links will be in the show notes as well. The final piece of the structure of these letters is a promise of reward. These promises are often the most metaphorical or symbolic portion of the letter. So they present interpretive difficulties. One thing I'll point out about the promises now and dig into more later is the fact that they tie into the last two chapters of Revelation. For example, in chapter 2, verse 7, the reward for the church is the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. And this is parallel to the tree of life in Revelation 22, verse 2. One final note before we start reading Revelation chapter 2. Each letter calls believers to listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. This could mean that each message to an individual church was apparently also intended for the other six churches. This letter would have been circulated and read throughout Asia Minor. So while each letter describes an actual situation in an individual church, They also serve as warnings and encouragement to all churches. As we read throughout these letters, you might start to wonder which of these churches is like my church or which letter is most similar to my experience. Any church or body of believers today might share positive and negative traits with several of these churches. And this is probably why Jesus had John write one letter to seven churches. They all got to read each other's mail. What a neighboring church was struggling with today, they might face tomorrow. Taken together, the letters give us a good picture of what Jesus expects from his church. To be faithful gatherings made up of believers who overcome. So maybe rather than trying to decide which church yours resembles, focus on faithful obedience to Jesus. All right, let's start reading. We'll read Revelation chapter 2, starting in verse 1, and we'll read through verse 7. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To those who are victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. All right, there's a lot here. Let's start in verse 1. John writes, To the angel of the church in Ephesus. So, just like we looked at in Revelation chapter 1, verse 20, this angel may be the pastor of the church at Ephesus or an angel looking in on the workings of, of the church at Ephesus. In some way, this angel represents this church, but the letter isn't written to just the representative, but to the whole congregation, the whole church. So this first letter is written to Ephesus. So let's look at some context for the church of Ephesus. Ephesus was the crossroads of civilization. It's on the western coast of Asia Minor and connected out towards the north, east, and south by major highways and when I think of the location of Ephesus and how many travelers passed through it to get to where they were going, it makes me think of flying to Europe from the United States. One of the big connecting airports is in Amsterdam, and I remember flying to Germany and England multiple times when I was younger, and most all of my layovers were in Amsterdam. I remember being in high school and talking in a class about traveling. and I shared with the class that I'd been to Amsterdam five times What I didn't tell them was that it was all because of layovers. Similarly, Ephesus was a connection point. It was the trade center of the area. It was also world famous as a religious, cultural, and economic center. Religiously, Ephesus was the center for the worship of the fertility goddess known in Greek as Artemis and then Romanized as Diana. The church at Ephesus was probably founded by Aquila, Priscilla, and Paul, and you can read more about that in Acts 18 and 19. So the church at Ephesus receives this letter, and the first thing they are told is that Jesus is the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. And these images were taken from John's vision of Jesus in Revelation 1. They emphasize the authority of Jesus in the church and his presence among the church. In verses 2 and 3, Jesus looked at his church and he knew its condition. It was no mystery to him. There may be sin or corruption hidden in a congregation, but it isn't hidden to Jesus. And he would say the same thing to us today, both as individuals and as a church. I know your works. The celebration here is that their works were to be commended. Jesus knew what this church did right. They worked hard for the Lord and they had endurance. By all outward appearances, this was a solid church that worked hard, had great outreach, and protected the integrity of the gospel. Yet, verse 4, yet I hold this against you you have forsaken the love that you had at first. Despite all the good in the church at Ephesus, there's something seriously wrong. They have left or forsaken, not lost, their first love. They once had a love that they don't have anymore. The distinction between leaving and losing is important. Something can be lost by accident, but Leaving is a deliberate act. When we lose something, we don't know where to find it. But when we leave something, we do know where to find it. The interesting thing is that though they had left their first love, everything looked great on the outside. If you would have attended a church service of, at Ephesus, you might have thought, this is a happening church. They're doing so much and they really guard the truth. Uh, At the same time, you might have had this vague, uneasy feeling, yet it would probably be hard to pin down. It wasn't hard for Jesus to see the problem, even though everything probably looked wonderful on the outside. The Ephesian church was a working church, and sometimes a focus on working for Jesus will eclipse a love relationship with him. We can put what we do for Jesus before we are in him. And maybe that's what you need to hear today. It's not so much about what you do, but who you are. And don't get me wrong, what you do is an overflow of who you are, but make sure you're taking the time to be with Jesus instead of just doing things for him. So what does Jesus tell the church at Ephesus to do about this problem? He says, consider or remember how far they had fallen. The first step in restoration is for them to remember. This means remembering where they used to be and their love for the Lord and for one another. An example of this is with the story of the prodigal son in Luke 15. After he left his father with his inheritance, the son lived a wild life and ended up taking care of pigs to try to survive. His first step in returning to his father was remembering what his life was like in his father's home. So Jesus tells this church to remember. And then he tells them to repent. The Hebrew word for repent is teshuva, which literally means to turn around. This is not a command to feel sorry or really to feel anything. It means to change your direction, to go a different way. He says to repent and do the things you did at first. This means they must go back to the basics, to the very first things they did when they first fell in love with Jesus. So what are some examples of first works? Well, remembering how they used to spend time in his word or, or how you how used to pray. Or the joy in getting together with other Christians or even remembering how excited you were about telling others about Jesus. This is what he's calling them back to. And he says if they don't repent, he's going to remove their lampstand. And this sounds bad, like really bad. What does it mean? When I was studying this with my friends a couple months back, one person asked if this meant that they could lose their salvation. And that's a long theological discussion for another day. Here, with Jesus saying he would remove their lampstand, it's a reference to his light and his presence in the church. If their lampstand was removed, they could continue as an organization, but no longer as a true church of Jesus. See, light doesn't come from the lampstands. The light comes from the lamp themselves. The stands merely make the light more visible. This is why the lampstands are a good picture of the church. We don't produce light. We display it. And we can only display it fully and adequately when we're in right relationship with the Lord. Verse 6. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Here, Jesus gives the church another compliment. They were complimented because they hated the practices of the Nicolaitans. But who were the Nicolaitans and what were they doing that deserved to be hated? Different commentaries talk about how they lived lives of unrestrained indulgence, lives of immorality and idolatry. And Jesus says that he hates this. These are powerful words and that they're coming from our Savior who's so rich in love. We learn that the God of love hates sin and wants his people to also hate sin. Verse 7, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This qualifies everyone, or at least everyone who will listen This letter was not only written to the church at Ephesus in John's day, but it it can be written to all of us, to all Christians throughout all centuries. And then in this verse, he continues, to those who are victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God, to him who overcomes. So Jesus made this promise to him who overcomes, but what does the overcomer Overcome. We usually think of overcoming in dramatic terms, of overcoming sin and spiritual warfare. But here, Jesus seems to be speaking of overcoming the coldness of their hearts and the lack of love marked by leaving their first love. And he says, I will give to eat from the tree of life. The promise for these overcomers was a return to Eden a restoration, and eternal life. All right, well, that's all we have for today. We'll pick up next Friday with Revelation chapter 2, verse 8. Check out the show notes for a link to the commentary from David Guzik on Revelation 2, as well as other commentaries that I used today. You can find me on Instagram at Sam Frankart Until then, Shabbat Shalom. Maranatha.